Oh, let me get my lamps on One who's strong and tan Send me up a Samson Oh, there was a man So this week, the Academy announced that they will be adding a new Best Picture category? Sort of. They're adding Best Popular Film, which they haven't quite defined what exactly that means like what the qualifications for that are it basically seems like they don't want black panther to win best picture so they're kind of throwing it off into its own category because there's just more and more of these sort of big budget action films every year that are making it onto the nominee list and forcing out oscar bait movies which is what we assume is gonna happen right i maybe i'm wrong about all of that but yeah i don't know It's all very up in the air, and I kind of don't even think we know enough yet to know what that means for the podcast, even. I mean, my my first instinct is we're just going to stick with the actual strict best picture category and then complain about all the movies that should be in this category that are in the weird best popular film category instead. But I think we kind of need to wait to figure out how many nominees there are in both categories now and like what exactly the qualifications for being one or the other are. Right. And if you can be both. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, because like the Lord of the Rings, didn't didn't it win? It at least was nominated, I think, for every single movie in the trilogy. And you couldn't argue it wasn't popular. Yeah, it. I mean, it came out today that most of these changes seem to be being pushed on the Academy by ABC, which is pissed that the Oscar ratings have been going down steadily for like 10 years, you know, unlike everything else on television that's just doing gangbusters ratings these days. That was a joke. But the strategy seems to be to like get more big name pictures and more big name stars and less like, oh, is Sam Rockwell and Alice and Janney going to be there (laughs) type stuff that has been going on for the last couple of years. I don't think it's a particularly smart way to do that. I don't think that's actually the Oscars problem, but I think that's the problem they're trying to solve with this. Right, right. But if you, our listeners, have any opinion on whether or not we should also have to watch the best popular films in addition to the best picture we now have an email address which is screentestoftime at gmail.com so if you want to tell us what you think or if you want to tell us or ask us anything now you can contact us if you want yeah please send us email it would be really cool And with that, was just an also ram. I'd say cares move over. I want a man. Hello and welcome to the Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture in order, from the very first awards ceremony to someday the present year. Uh I'm Susan Araslin. And I'm Dave the Dude. No, you're not. You're David Daw. I, yeah, but I've been waiting to do that joke since I watched this movie three days ago, so go with me on this, Susan. All right. I'm going to start calling you that, Dave the Dude. Oh, shit. No, okay. I actually didn't think through the <laughs> next five seconds after this. I'm David Daw. And this week, we are discussing 
Lady for a Day, a Frank Capra film that was nominated for the 1932-1933 awards, and which features a character called Dave the Dude. Who is our male lead, really. And who, like most things in this movie, is delightful and utterly, completely disconnected from any kind of reality. (laughs) (laughs) That really is this movie in a nutshell. It is like, there are some problems with it. It definitely fails some screen test of time tests. There are meta tests. There are micro tests. I don't know. There are sub tests to the screen test of time. But it's generally a really delightful movie in Frank Capra tradition. I mean, it is a like rags to riches story in a like really delightful kind of way. And really what it is that I figured out about halfway through is we've called a couple of movies like farces as kind of a way to get through the fact that their plot just sucked. Or that their plot was totally unbelievable. Right. And like, this is a farce. This is like intentionally a farce. It does the thing that I love it when farce does, which is that like, well, in for a penny. And then you just get into this situation where you're trying to teach an entire room full of mobsters how to fake to being society people in a like eight hour rehearsal. I guess we should describe the plot, which is really quite simple. Yeah, there is a I mean, she's not homeless, but she is destitute uh, woman named Apple Annie who, who sells apples on the street. And she is kind of estranged from her daughter, who has been raised in a Spanish convent, and has been sending her letters and lying to her by saying that she is a society matron named E. Worthington Manville, which is just such a great fake rich person name. And then the daughter (laughs) sort of... The daughter sends a letter saying she is coming to New York to visit her mother, E. Worthington Manville, and Apple Annie freaks out. Apple Annie is also the good luck charm of Dave the Dude, who I, I believed at first to be a high stakes gambler, uh, who apparently was a gangster. And it took me half the movie to figure that out. <laughs> but he, because he is sort of friends with Apple Annie and believes her to be his good luck charm, ends up trying to assist her in trying to appear as E. Worthington Manville to her daughter and that and to her daughter's fiance who is the son of a count right and then to the count spanish count and then to the count himself and then to new york society at large because as it turns out this thing spirals in a really delightful way and then you know then they need a husband for e worthington manville because well she's mrs e worthington manville so now we have to find the dignified judge manville and that sort of escalates and escalates and escalates until at the very end, you think she's going to have to reveal the whole thing to the Count and sort of ruin her her daughter's engagement. When by just this th- this moment where the movie becomes completely unhinged from reality, but it's great. The mayor and the governor, who have both been concerned about all of the reporters that got kidnapped to try and keep this secret, find out about this entire story and their reaction is... Oh, this is delightful. Let's go help pull this prank (laughs) on a European count and bring all the actual society people to this society party they were going to fake up with a bunch of mobsters uh, and then give a police escort to Apple Annie and her daughter and the count and his son back to their ship that's leaving back for Europe 
And then the ship just leaves and that's the end of the movie. Like they just like they get away with it. End of film. <laughs> that is this movie. It is such a Frank Capra jam in that way and in the way that like you spend a lot of act one in the just emotional turmoil of Apple Annie in this like oh shit, Frank Capra directed this movie kind of a way. One of the things that I wasn't, I guess I wasn't totally clear on it, or maybe maybe it's just that I didn't believe this could possibly be the case, but it seemed like the mayor of New York City knew who Apple Annie was and was like, well, we gotta go help out the like destitute fruit seller that everybody loves. Yeah. Or was it just that he was like, yeah, let's go, hey, let's go participate in this prank i think the idea is more because this is what dave says when the police are threatening to arrest him is like if i told you what was really going on here like you'd laugh and i think the idea is that the mayor and the governor both hear what's actually going on and find it so hilarious that they're like yeah let's just go with this thing instead of going like you you kidnapped five people to help a homeless woman pretend to be a society woman there was definitely a feeling that i had in it of like well i don't know how new york city was in 1933 (laughs) but this shit would never happen in new york city today yeah i do not see bill de blasio being like oh okay so you kidnapped a bunch of journalists that that's fine that's fine because, you know, I would love to help out this uh, poverty-stricken woman pull a fast one on a Spanish count so that her daughter can marry his son. Yeah, and, like, I, I want to make it clear... That, Though that would be amazing! Yeah, and, like, in the context of the film, I want to make it clear, like, it works, and it also is kind of, like, winkingly, like, this would never happen. By the time you're in the police escort to get back to the boat, Even the movie is like, okay, yeah, this is absurd. This would never happen. But this is fun. So we're going to do it anyway. There's a moment where Dave the Dude, Mm -hmm. your namesake, when he's beating around the bush, actually, as to what's going on and why he's kidnapped these five journalists. Which also was hilarious to me because it's like, imagine a time where all you have to do is kidnap five journalists to keep something secret. Yeah. But he says, you believe in fairy tales, don't you? And I was like, well... Gave the whole game away, Frank Capra. Yeah. Or Robert Riskin, who is the screenwriter who definitely deserves wild accolades. Because this is totally a Frank Capra movie. And a lot of the pathos comes from him really, really pushing the sad stuff. But the fact that this totally ludicrous story all hangs together and moves at a clip. And it's a really, really tight story is down to the scripts. I would agree with all of that. It does a thing I don't think we've seen any movie do so far, where just, like, everything in this movie is there for a reason. Like, every scene you're in isn't just there because it's, like, fun. Like, it's necessary to the plot. And, like, comes back. Like, if there's a weird detail, it will come back in this movie, instead of just being a weird detail. Yeah, like, for for instance, Henry Blake, who's the guy that they cast quote-unquote as the judge he's a big gambler but his game is billiards and you're like okay cool what whatever 
And then that becomes a major plot point instead of just, like, a quirk of his character. Yeah, and, like, it's one of those things where the initial scene setting him up as a pool hustler is a fun enough scene that, like, it would have been fine with me if he was just a pool hustler. But then late in the film, the Count, in what I briefly thought was going to be a reveal that the Count was also a con man, but actually was just the Count being a Count, gets really bent out of shape about the dowry. Yeah, no one's offered one yet. And then just casually mentions in one of the great, just everything works out in this way that is really convenient, but also adorable things, just goes like, oh, I'm also just so good at pool. I like, I love, I love playing pool and I'm one of the best pool players in Spain. Definitely to Henry Blake, the character's credit, he doesn't try to shark him in the traditional way of like, oh, I, I'm not that great at pool, but I would love to play. He's like, well, I'm, I'm pretty good. I, uh, I could probably do it. So yeah, they make this bet that basically if one of them wins, the other one has to pay both sides of their, like, support money which is fifty thousand dollars which like the mind boggles as to how much that must have been in 1933 yeah i thought about googling it and then i just thought like a lot the entire budget for this entire film is three hundred thousand (laughs) dollars yeah so fifty thousand dollars in today's money would be nine hundred forty thousand nine hundred thirty one dollars and thirty cents. So like almost a million dollars. No wonder he was freaking out. But he did it and confidently. And one of my favorite moments is he does the last shot and then like walks off oh, right. to go join the party without even seeing if the ball falls in. Right, after establishing, like, oh, this shot is almost impossible to make, and then letting the Count do the, like, no, it's it's technically possible, I guess you could do it if you did this incredibly difficult thing. He, like, starts to make the shot, the butler comes in and says you have a phone call, and then he makes the shot and just walks off, and the Count is so amazed he runs out into the hallway to tell him he made it. And he's like, oh, did I? All right, and then just keeps walking to the phone. Uh, yeah, oh, it was so good. It was so good. Uh, I want to talk a little bit, actually, about that actor and kind of the casting in general, because one of the things I learned from Wikipedia was, like, this was Frank Capra's, like, fifth choice for cast because the studio system just shut out everyone he actually wanted for, like, everyone. And, like, when you look at the actual casting... There are a couple of people where you're like, oh, that would be great. But by and large, you're like, oh, man, I'm so glad the studio system shut him out on that. For starters, Apple Annie was going to be Mary Dressler, my nemesis. (laughs) Oh, boy, I'm glad that that she didn't make it in. (laughs) Yeah, Mae Robson is fantastic in this movie, by the way. Doing some real dramatic heavy lifting in like a movie that is absurd around her and doing a great job of it. Actually, there were a number of times where like I was honestly moved to almost to tears because of something that was going on with Apple Annie. So the way that she gets letters from her daughter is her daughter sends them to this fancy hotel and one of the hotel staff I don't know, a bellboy or a concierge or somebody swipes the letters before somebody throws them out because there's obviously no one named Mrs. E. Worthington Manville staying at the hotel. And 
the guy gets caught and gets fired. So she goes to pick up her letter and this other bellboy has turned it over to the male guy and is like, send it back because there's nobody here named that. And she loses it. And I was like, oh my God, this poor woman. She's like, she she is old and, and one kind of gets the impression that like, well, she's kind of an alcoholic. Oh yeah, no, she's definitely an alcoholic. Like that, that okay. they bring it up a lot. Dave the dude in another just like, boy, that does not feel like real life apparently knows her detailed medical history because he talks over and over again about what the doctor has said about her liver. Her kidneys. Her kidneys, right. Yeah, because that was one where I was like, that's a very specific and, like, liver is obvious. Kidneys is like, okay, that is a thing that could be affected by that. But yeah, like, how does he know what the doctor is saying about her kidneys? And, like, I think the idea is, like, because he she is his good luck charm, he, like, has intervened on her behalf before. Right. But, like, it is really weird. <laughs> she manages to walk this line of both making Apple Annie, like, a lived-in character whose pain is very real and something you're very concerned about, and also not bring down the whole movie, <laughs> which is, like, a thing that's very possible, like, to get, like, way too real. That scene in the hotel lobby was this moment where I like again I like agree with you that Robert Riskin did like really great work but I would argue that like on paper that hotel scene is kind of played for laughs the idea is like oh ho this smelly homeless woman has come into this fancy hotel and no one knows how to deal with her oh it's definitely played for laughs slash really really heartbreaking which I think is one of the things that's amazing about this movie is that there's a lot of that it feels like it's playing to both poor people in the 1930s who have been affected by the depression and to like rich upper crust people who haven't been I guess and it manages to have it both ways it's rare that you have something that manages to appeal to two totally separate audiences and diametrically opposed audiences Mm -hmm. I mean I think this is like the balance that the champ was trying to strike, say. And it didn't really land there. Oh, yeah. There it just kind of felt like it was wildly swinging back and forth between, like, mawkishly sentimental and just, like, wow, kitty adventures. Blah, yeah, blah, 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 blah. And, like, here they really, those tonal shifts are still there, but they really, like, they signal them properly. <laughs> and, like, they're, they're performed well. You go with the movie on them. It doesn't do it scene by scene, if that makes sense. Like, in the champ, it, so you'd have, like, wacky kid adventures. And then in the next one, you would have, like, Jackie Cooper losing his shit, crying in one of the most effective scenes we've watched even though it wasn't in the most effective movie. And it's like, it didn't manage to ever marry those two at all. And this like blended them beautifully. The first 15 minutes of this film are bizarre to watch, not because they're bad, but because you really do spend, I would say the first 15 minutes going, well, now surely this 70 year old apple seller is not her lead. Like, surely this destitute, like, I genuinely was like, oh, I guess cast is in order of appearance when, like, they listed everybody's name. No. But no, she is our main character. And, like, good. But even there is a quote on the Wikipedia page where Frank Capra is like, 
I cannot believe we have a heroine who's a 70-year-old, like, alcoholic apple seller. This'll never work. But the studio head, to his credit, said, all I know is that things got wallop. Yeah. Which is the most 1933 thing I've ever heard. And so much of this movie is like the most 1933 thing. There's just this unspoken fraternity of homeless people with the mob that's just like, oh yes, of course. In this way of like, ridiculous, not actually 1933, but like, the way 1933 is popularly imagined, where, like, yeah, the mayor of town knows this one quasi-homeless apple seller. The mayor of New York City. That's the thing that, like, the mayor of any town USA might have known this one homeless apple seller, but, like, we're talking about a city of 8 million people, which at the time was, like, a city of 7.4 million or whatever it was. Manhattan hasn't gotten that much more populous in that amount of time. Yeah. So the fact that he knows, like, the one fruit seller is ridiculous. Like, I don't even know all the fruit sellers that live in a five-block radius of my neighborhood. Yeah. And I'm not the fucking mayor. <laughs> right. Though I, I could be. <laughs> Vote for me. No, please do not vote for me for mayor of New York City. That sounds like a terrible job. What were you saying? Oh, I, I think we were just talking about, like, the sort of unreality of this thing and the way that it is kind of like a fairy tale. It does a really good job of that, and I feel like it does a really good job of that by, like, grounding the characters. Like, as ridiculous as the situation becomes, you genuinely care about these people and they're interesting. There's this thing that I actually really love about this movie is that, like, I think even if you did a, like, modern-day version of this... There would be, like, this extra 10-minute coda that wrapped everything up more nicely. There's some stuff that's just hinted at and then never really resolves. You get the sense that Henry D. Blake, the fake judge, has actually kind of fallen for Apple Annie in her E. Worthington Manville makeup and outfit. It's not like they kiss at the end of the film or anything. It's just that he increasingly gets into character as her husband and does very husbandly like, oh, you look delightful stuff to her. And she's like, oh, stop it. And he doesn't stop it. And it's sweet. It's very sweet. After the daughter gets on the boat in like the 2018 version of this movie, there's the scene where Dave the Dude and Missouri Martin are getting married. And Appalachian and Henry D. Blake are like there, like giving him away or something, where we wrap everything up and we announce exactly what the happy ending is for everybody. And instead it's like, no, it worked out. And like you decide how you want, how, how happy, how everybody ends up after this is done. Right. There is a ridiculous pronouncement by the governor on their way in the police escort that he's going to drop all charges for Dave the Dude. But other than that, they kind of leave a lot of stuff hanging. That, like, big gangster gambling deal that Dave the Dude is intermittently concerned about never really resolves. None of the sort of romantic plot lines except for the daughters, and even that one only vaguely resolves. It really just ends on, like, it worked out. And what it worked out means exactly is up to you. Bye. <laughs> We should say who Missouri Barton is, because we didn't mention her in the plot description. Right. Uh, she is kind of a gangster mall who is a, a nightclub performer at... Does Dave the Dude own that club or just go to it a lot? Uh, unclear. 
Fair, fair. Anyway, she is at this club. Dave the Dude is gambling over whether a fly will land on one salt cube, <laughs> sugar cube, or another at... Listening to our Shanghai Express episode, was that just a... Was gambling on random ass shit just a real 1933 thing that I don't know about? I think so. I feel like in the 30s, that was when people were doing stuff like sitting on flagpoles and like trying to do things for the longest amount of time or like that nobody had ever done before. There was a lot of swimming the English channel type stuff. So I think it just inspired people to like bet on, I mean, people bet on random shit now too. Yeah, I mean, that's fair, but this is, this is genuinely like, it's a 10 grand bet on a fly. (laughs) is how we're introduced to Dave the Dude. She's introduced singing a big number called I Want a Man and is just really, like, directly hitting on Dave the Dude for the entire movie while his henchman, I guess, whose incredibly gangstery name is Happy Maguire, just spends the whole movie ragging on her. <laughs> and in the fiction of E. Worthington Manville, she makes herself Dave the Dude's wife. And he kind of does this, like, get out of here with that thing about it. That's, like, clearly, like, sort of delighted by it, but is also like, ah, you. (laughs) Uh, And she is played by Glenda Farrell, who was in I'm a Fugitive from a Chain Gang, and who was kind of one of the villains of that movie. Oh, right. She's She's the boarding house woman who blackmails the guy into marrying her. And she was so cool in this movie. Yeah, she's she's great in this. Everybody's great in this, really. Even, like, really minor characters. Like, Dave the Dude's other henchman, Shakespeare, who I thought that was just a mean nickname for him. And also, it almost certainly is just a mean nickname for him. But it's also the only thing anyone ever calls him for the entire movie. You know, it's actually really great that they didn't get any of the people that they wanted for this movie because thinking about like robert montgomery who we've seen at least once he was in the big house oh and he's the guy in the divorcee he would i think have stood out too much because what's really great about this is that it's such a great ensemble of actors and everybody in it is really, really good. But no one person is like the star of this. And then Jimmy Cagney was considered for this and he would have absolutely taken over the entire movie. I think that about like almost every casting. W.C. Fields as Henry D. Blake also would have been like this big like reveal of like, we got W.C. Fields. Instead of... And apparently Marie Dressler would be that way too, even though Uh, we hate her. She was apparently quite popular. A little bit I'm stealing from Wikipedia here, because apparently Frank Capra has said the fact that a lot of these people were stage actors, a lot of, especially the sort of more destitute characters were stage actors, lends a sort of realism to like... Oh, these are nobodies? Yeah, how are you going to buy, like, a wildly famous actor as Apple Annie? You're not. Like, that's not a nobody. That's... Yeah. That's Marie Dressler, somehow beloved actress of stage and screen. (laughs) I want to note that Frank Capra apparently remade this movie with the title Pocketful of Miracles, which, among other things, is a terrible title. (laughs) 
Lady for a Day is a great title for, hey, this is Pygmalion, but also without all the weird shit from Pygmalion. Yeah, there's there's no, like, bizarre sexual <laughs> S&M overtones to this movie because the woman getting her makeover is 70 instead of 17 or whatever <laughs> she is in Pygmalion slash My Fair Lady. And apparently Betty Davis was in Pocketful of Miracles, which in 1961, she would have been so bonkersly famous. Like, how are you going to buy her? She's got to be the daughter, though, right? Like, there's no way. In 1961? No, she definitely would have been Apple Annie. Holy shit. No, you're right. She's Apple Annie. Yeah. Because she would have been, like, in her 60s or late 50s at that point? Well, sure. But, like, even, like I, w- I would have, one, I would have said 50s which I'm apparently totally wrong about. But two, like, I... You would have been right, actually. She, she was in her 50s. Good job, David. Was she? Oh, yeah. But it's one of those things where Betty Davis in her 50s does not play a 70-year-old woman. She does in Hollywood. I guess by the 60s, they were starting to do that thing where if you were over 35, you were now an old lady. <laughs> the last fuckable day Amy Schumer sketch. Right. Yeah. One of the things I really liked about it, and I did while I was watching it, have thoughts of My Fair Lady or Pygmalion is how much kinder and more enjoyable that setup is when the guy who is doing it has sort of a maternal feeling for the woman involved and not like a romantic sexual one. It's that first thing that I was saying like that I loved so much is There's this feeling of Dave the Dude getting dragged deeper and deeper into this thing, which avoids the Pygmalion or, like, she's all that problem of, like, there's only one, like, Apple Annie, that'll never work line in the whole movie. Where was it? I think it was actually when Henry D. Blake gets introduced to the idea of playing the husband. He's like, Apple Annie could never be a, and then gets stopped dead by her post-makeover. Right, but she looks like a classy older lady instead of like, you know, everybody in the room looks like the cartoon wolf with their tongue on the ground. Right. I guess what I'm saying this avoids is that sort of weird feeling that they're in it out of like pride that you get from Pygmalion. Right. That like... Even beyond the, like, weird sexual overtones, even if you're like, well, their romance is real, so it's fine, there's always this weird power dynamic of, like, this was all a game to them that this movie also completely avoids. Because there's this feeling of, like, I'm just trying to do this one nice thing for this old lady, and I don't even want to be doing it, and now it's this whole damn thing. But now I'm kind of getting into it because I've put enough effort into it that I really want it to work. Why is it so hard to be nice to people? Uh, which I think Missouri Martin basically says directly toward the end of the film. It's just like, you try to do something nice for somebody and they, (laughs) and like, that's such a sweeter and more sort of relatable setup to that than like, I bet you I can make a random woman jump off a building in 48 hours. And it's just like, who does this? (laughs) What kind of asshole does these weird fucking bets about a woman's fate? And, like, none of that. It's great. When Dave the Dude is explaining why he's doing it, he's like, well, you know, she's my good luck charm, so I've got to make sure that she's she's taken care of. What's really lovely is that he's framing it as like, nah, nah, it's totally selfish. And it's like, nah, dude, you, you're literally saying that this woman who has given you good luck and nothing else 
has never done anything else for you at all, except for this, like, superstitious quality that you have attributed to her, that you're gonna do something nice for her? And, like, it's cool that he is not even aware of how selfless it is that he's doing this. I mean, he kidnapped five reporters. He was- he was- potentially like gonna go to jail forever right he gets seemingly every single gangster and gangster mall in the entire city together in his penthouse apartment and writes speeches for all of them so that they can effectively pretend to be socialites and and it is all pitched as like well, I've started doing this thing, and damn it, I'm going to do it right. Which is absurd, and but in the best way. Yeah, it's really, it's really nice. Hey, everybody, it's David again, here to ask you to like, subscribe, and review us on iTunes. All that stuff goes into the metric special sauce that Apple uses to determine what podcasts get promoted and shown to people. And that's how Serial got started. It was just that. A lot of people reviewed it, and then it was like, when's Serial Season 2? And, like, it'd be great if they did that for us. That's the only thing standing in our way. You guys like subscribing, reviewing. Also, in-depth reporting. And a big push from NPR. So we've talked a lot about everything that we loved about this movie, which was, like, the vast majority of it. But there were some places where this movie definitely had some problems. I mean... To start with, as delightful as a trope of the, like, society of beggars is, like, that's not great as an actual representation. This movie doesn't maybe do the best job representing the actual plight of the homeless, although it at least tries, which is better than a lot of Depression-era movies we've watched. I definitely had the feeling when I was watching it of, like, So we're literally going to let the mayor and the governor be the good guys because they come out for a fucking party for a homeless woman and not like, I don't know, putting in place some legislation that takes care of poor people. Yeah. For example. This movie is like really deeply engaged in the effects of the depression, but the politics of it are like, I think Apple Annie basically early in the film talks about the fireside chats and is like, didn't you hear the president? Everything's going to be fine. Anyway, mainly my concern is my daughter. (laughs) And you're like, this does not seem like the lived experience of the jobless poor in 1933, but neither does anything else in this movie really conform to reality. So... Yeah, that's true. The thing that I was specifically thinking of, though, again, sadly, there was some, like, racial and ethnic insensitivity, shall we say, in this movie. First of all, Walter Connolly playing the Spanish Count with the world's most ludicrous accent. Yeah, that was another thing that led me to believe he was going to be a con man. Yeah, I kept waiting for that to break, for it to be like, oh, okay, the reason he has the worst Spanish accent I've ever heard is because he's not actually Spanish and he's not actually a count. Yeah. And nope, it was just this American guy having a terrible Spanish accent, which was like, I mean, he kind of sounded like Speedy Gonzalez, but like not quite. It was, it was really bad. And then there is a moment where he calls the Spanish consulate from the hotel And they have the switchboard, like, redirected to the room where Annie and everybody is planning the big party. 
and Dave the Dude picks up the phone and pretends to be a Japanese person who works at the Spanish consulate and does this terrible, like, Ching Chong Sing Song, I don't understand, thing. Then the worst thing is it works. Yeah. It's bad enough that, like, he panic does a terrible Asian stereotype voice. But, like, then the Spanish count is just like, okay, I guess I guess there was a Japanese person on the other end of the line. Goodbye. Right. And Dave the Dude's whole thing is like, oh, no, Spanish consulate, he not here. He away from office right now. And you're like, oh, my God, are we really doing this? I... I, I really also want to make it clear that the voice Susan just did is verbatim the voice that Dave the Dude did. That is what happens in this movie, and that was not mine. I really, like, <laughs> hearing someone else do it, I really feel the need to apologize for it. I'd kind of blocked that scene out, although while watching the film, I did have the thought of just like, ah, oh, fuck. Like, we were doing so well. <laughs> Like, oh, dang. We, like... Because <laughs> I was there and I was like, all right, there are definitely some nuances about socioeconomic issues here that are, are definitely being sidestepped, but, like, it's a fantasy. It's a farce. It's a fairy tale. Fine. Like, Cinderella doesn't really dive into the nuances of child abuse, you know? Fine. It's a fairy tale. But did we really need the racism? It was just so fucking unnecessary. Like, there could have been any other solution to that yeah it's i mean it's very similar to the 42nd street scene that's just like why that's like it's this two minute scene that is it actually is now that i think about it the only scene that is totally disconnected from the entire rest of the film it's the only scene you could just pick up and take out of the movie it never comes back it's not like they later reference him trying to call the spanish consulate it doesn't add anything you can just cut that scene from the movie and no one notices or cares. Also, why on earth is he calling the Spanish consulate to look into a New York judge and his wife? Yes. Is, you know, who they're pretending to be. Like, the Spanish consulate isn't going to know anything about that. They have other shit to deal with. I had that same thought of like, and also the son then goes like, it was very unsportsmanlike. And I'm like, what was the plan? What, what, like, what was he actually going to do when, like, am I missing something? Yeah. I definitely didn't understand why that needed to be in there. Uh, Yeah. But, I mean, oh, again, like, I'm, I'm judging this based on the other movies that we've watched. I think there's that. And I do also think that there is a, like, it is a weirdly disconnected kind of racism, which I guess is better in the sense that it doesn't taint the whole thing. It isn't like the movie is about weird Japanese stereotypes. It just has one for no, for, for fucking no reason. Yeah. So if anyone's going to remake this movie, take that part out. Totally unnecessary. Yeah. Like, for instance, Frank Capra, 30 years later. When you remake this 30 years later, please just take that scene out. Which we're not going to watch for this project, so we won't ever know. Re- yeah. Should we rate? Yeah, that was what I was going to say. We should we should rate this. I'm going to give this an 8. Yeah, I'm going to give it an 8 as well. Minus that glaring racism and the ludicrous fake Spanish accent, I would have given it a 9. Yeah. I mean, I, I will say, I don't know. I don't think this is the best movie that we've watched in an absolute sense. Like, I think All Quiet on the Western Front is probably a better movie. But, like, 
This is the movie that I would most unreservedly recommend of everything we've watched so far. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it, it was a pleasure to watch. It's possibly the only movie that we've watched where there was no time during it that I thought, just keep paying attention because you have to review this later. Like, I was engaged. Yeah. Start to finish. I I, I would agree. I, I think there's a sort of 10 minute period at the beginning where I kind of had to get my bearings. Uh, but it's not like that was an unentertaining 10 minutes. Like the, the scene in Apple Annie's apartment where she like, she says my picture when she looks at the picture of her daughter. And I thought we were going to like flash back to her youth or something. And, and then, oh, it's her daughter. Ah. <laughs> and so like, for the first 10 minutes, I'm like, what is this movie? But I'm like that for every movie we watch. And usually that process drags on for like an hour. And sometimes it never ends. To this day, I'm asking myself what the champ is. <laughs> and I definitely felt that way about Cavalcade. Uh, we haven't watched the final movie of this year. Spoiler alert, it, it, it the Academy definitely didn't pick correctly this year. Not at all. Like, I have two movies now that I would put above Cavalcade. Oh, yeah. And Smiling Through, like, I put above Cavalcade, but, like, this movie is head and shoulders above Smiling Through. Yeah. Which brings us to next week and our final movie for the 1932-1933 Academy Awards, which is Little Women. Starring Catherine Hepburn, who has to be playing Joe, right? Yeah, she is. Like the oh yeah, she is. Okay, <laughs> I was like, because there's literally no other person. Yeah, she she's playing Joe. The the like there's a pretty good cast, but like it's kind of Catherine Hepburn and others. <laughs> yeah, that is definitely what this movie is. Was she even like that? famous at that point you know i don't know this might well be her breakout role oh i mean she actually she is at the top it says katherine hepburn and louise of may alcott's immortal novel little women so yeah i guess she was <laughs> oh yeah she gets better <laughs> she gets better billing than louise may alcott so probably she's a pretty big star <laughs> Yeah, I, I guess she's probably pretty famous at this point. But, like, what was her breakout role? That's a really good question. Because in 1933, she was, like, 24 or something? Yeah. Apparently this is, like, her third movie or something. Well, like, that's that's impressive that her third movie, she gets Billy above the author of the novel on which the book is based. Yeah. Good, good for you, Kate. Good for you. So yeah, next week, tune in and find out if Little Women knocks the other two movies that were better than the Best Picture award winner <laughs> out of the running. Whether Cavalcade even gets the bronze. At this point, I would give the bronze to 42nd Street and say the hell with Cavalcade. Uh, that's, I guess that's fair. I mean, we'll talk about it next week. Until then. This was a great movie. Like, this, go watch this movie. It was great. Go get it. There's a restored edition where Frank Capra's son talks about how much Frank Capra loved this movie for five minutes in front of it. And it's very adorably like Turner Classic Movie See, And watch it. Absolutely. Until next week. Goodbye, everybody. We had a wife for each blessed day. And I could go for a song in a great 
a bigger way. Oh, honest, I'm not joking. Since 